Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon, and please join me in welcoming our television uh, viewers to today's program. My name is Jennifer Sloan. I'm the president of the Canadian Club of Toronto, and we thank our viewing audience for being with us. The Canadian Club has a long history as the leading current affairs podium in Canada. Led by a volunteer board of directors, we are dedicated to encouraging open and accessible debate on issues that matter to Toronto, to the province, and to our country. Through our youth and young leaders programs, civic action diversity partnerships, accessibility commitments, as well as through our media partnerships and social media properties, we provide opportunities for Canadians around the world to engage with leading political, business, and public figures. Thank you for joining the conversation. Before I formally introduce our speakers, I'd like to tell you about some of our upcoming events this season. Next week, on February 10th, join two former ambassadors, the Honourable Gordon Giffen and the Honourable Frank McKenna, for what promises to be a lively and candid dialogue about what the last 25 years of politics and diplomacy pretend for the next 25 years in the Canada-U.S. relationship. And on February 12th, we are proud to welcome to our podium Minik LaRue, Chair of the Board, President and CEO of Desjardins Group, to discuss the merits of the cooperative model in building sustainable prosperity in Canada. For a full listing of the club's upcoming events and to order tickets, please visit our website at www.canadianclub.org. You can also join the conversation via Twitter and Instagram by following us at CDNCLUBTO or by using that hashtag. I'd like to express special thanks to today's sponsors, BMO Capital Markets, EY, and Marsh Canada. Thank you all for your generous support in making this event possible today. Thank you. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, on your behalf, I'm pleased to introduce today's topic and the panel of experts who will weigh in on it. The world economy is experiencing turbulence. Markets are facing considerable fluctuations. Some industries are contracting. Others are exercising an abundance of caution. This is currently true in the mining sector, where companies are digging for answers about the impact of dropping commodity prices, the effect of slumping oil and gas costs, and the adverse effects of a sluggish global economy. Mining stocks are falling as the value of base and precious metals dips to new lows. The World Bank is predicting an unprecedented drop in commodity markets this year. Here at home, governments are working with one of the country's, lead, country's key industries to find solutions to support growth. In fact, the British Columbia government just last week pledged an additional $6 million to support mining and mineral exploration projects in that province.
Canada is known for its international mining leadership. So what do these markets and sectoral pressures mean for Canadian companies? Let's find out firsthand from the experts themselves. Mr. Pierre Lasson, an undisputed heavyweight in the mining arena, is chairman of Franco Nevada. A member of the Order of Canada, he has served on many mining boards and industry committees. A dedicated philanthropist, examples of his generosity include the Lasson Institute of Mining and Lasson Mineral Engineering Program at U of T. Joining Mr. Lasson today, Catherine Farrell, CEO and Director, TMAC Resources, Randall Oliphant, CEO, New Gold, and Bruce Simpson, Director, McKinsey and Company. Mr. Lasson and panelists, the Canadian Club of Toronto, Canada's podium of record is now yours. Ladies and, ladies and gentlemen, you'll notice on your table there's a sheet called Q&A. If you have any questions, please jot them down. Canadian Club volunteers will come around to pick them up, and uh, Mr. Lasson will, will read from them at some point. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much. And uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, hopefully, we're going to do something that uh, will be of interest to you, and you'll learn something, and you'll uh, get out of here and say, like, you know, at least I, I learned one little bit. If we achieve that, then we've done uh, our, um, our duty today. So, um, speakers, uh, 14 years ago, uh, the gold price was uh, in the dump. 14 years ago, we had... Uh, Johnny Cash, Bob Hope, and Steve Jobs. And today we have no cash, no hope, and no jobs. <laughs> so, Randall, what do you do at New Gold with that? Well, Pierre, that was very funny. Um, you know, following that introduction, uh, I think I've been to funerals that have been a little more inspiring. Um, but uh, I dispute all of those things. Um, I know it feels that way right now because of stock prices being down. Uh, you know, companies are cutting back. Uh, all we hear, we don't hear about any sort of growth anywhere. But uh, in terms of hope, I think we've got tons of hope for our industry with, you know, the greatest migration of people in the history of man urbanizing who are going to need our products. In terms of cash, we've already seen a billion dollars raised so far this year for just gold companies. And what was the other one that we don't have any? Um, jobs. 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 Yeah, well, I think as we continue to expand, we're going to create lots of jobs. And just here in Ontario, we have 144,000 people who work in the mining industry. And a lot of the people in this room in financial services uh, have some of the best-paying jobs in, in the country uh, because they're a big part of supporting what we do. Bruce, what do you think? Are you going to provide any jobs or any hope? <laughs> well, I, let me build on where Randall was going. I, I th there's a lot to be proud of, I think, in the, in, in the mining sector. Uh, I look at what you've done, for example, with royalties. It's, it's a, you know, a whole other way of value creation, which I think is fantastic. <coughs> it is a top three sector in the country, employs 400,000 people, the highest wages, uh, uh, 1,900 bucks a week, average wage in mining. It's not bad. Um, and uh, and you know, we're a top five producer in, in about a dozen or so uh, metals across the globe. So I think there's a lot to be, be proud of. At the same time, I would add to that, in today's, today's markets, look, there are things that we don't control, right? We do not control oil prices. We don't control geology. Uh, we don't control our currency values. 
Uh, and so, but there are some things that we do control. And, and I would add that we're not as productive in the mining sector as we could be in Canada. Uh, we would say that Canadian mining companies are actually less productive than their peers in Australia and the US. We can control productivity. We should get to it. Uh, we're also a bit of a laggard in introducing technology. Uh, and there are technologies that are working uh, now uh, in, in other sectors which we could be using in mining. So there's, there's lots to be proud of, but also lots that we can do that we do control uh, going forward to get even better. All right, so, you know, the, the Toronto would like to boast that it has most uh, headquarters of mining companies in the world, thousands, that we've got, like, the best uh, financial sector, like, providing money. Uh, we've got the university, uh, you know, the professors, the, the, the scientists and everything else. Why is it, then, that we do not have a company that is what I would call a world leader, like a... a a BHP, uh, an RTZ, or like your Valley, one of the really large companies. I mean, you know, we have the second largest land mass in the world, okay? So we have the geology, we have the people. Why is it then we don't have a leading company like that? Catherine. Yeah, oh, I'm, I'm leaving you the easy question. Yeah, that, thanks. <laughs> yeah, actually, it's a it's a question actually that I thought about a lot because I worked for quite a bit of the early part of my career at um, at one of those lost uh, companies called Inco, and um, I think there are a couple of things. We're great miners, and 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 the the mining industry um, and metals uh, extraction has always been a, a key part of the drivers um, as long as Canada has been a company. Our country, and and I think one of the things we got so caught up in being good at finding and extracting, maybe we were just that far away from end users. Because if you look at the companies that really grew very very successfully, um, either they were producing the large bulk tonnage style operations, such as iron ore that kind of thing, or they were close to traders. And we had a lot of success there. And that we're not, we're, we've always been a little bit re removed from that end use. And did that influence our leadership and make us complacent that mining, well, this is, this is really where it all happens, so we'll always have a position. Maybe we got complacent. And I throw that out there as a possibility. Bruce, what do you think? Well, you know, from, you, you have a practice that sees at the world. So, like, you know, why is it that we are where we are? Well, I'm in two minds on that one, actually, because on the one hand, you could say that, you know, back, you know, back uh, a few years ago, there could have been an opportunity to create sure. the Canadian BHP or the Rio Tinto if, if certain people had got together and, and really partnered to create that. Um, at the same time, our record in creating smaller mining companies is terrific, and bigger isn't necessarily better. Uh, and we do have, uh, you know, some terrific performers, I think, in the mining industry. So, so I think it's, uh, on the one hand, it would be great in a way to see a great company up there that is Canadian, and, we, and we, I think we missed the boat there. On the other hand, there are some great things, particularly that the record in creating the smaller companies. Well, so, that, that, that's quite true. Uh, we have a, a great record of, at creating small companies, but the large company brings with it, uh, with, with them, uh, you know, headquarters, uh, research and, and development. Uh, you know, offices, uh, and we, you know, we've lost most of that, if not all of it. Um, Randall, how do you see that question? Well, I agree with it. I, I agree with, you know, our ability to create new companies, uh, you know, the expertise that we have in the industry, but something happened in Canada where we sort of lost our way when the companies became larger. Our, our priorities changed. The entrepreneurial people who were involved in founding them, who were 
primarily acting as shareholders. We started to attract more bureaucratic people in. Uh, and I think some of it had to do with the ownership structure of some of the companies that were mentioned and who some of their significant shareholders were. Uh, they weren't enabled to become international, were kept fairly domestic. Um, and, you know, we've really missed an opportunity. I just hope that when INCO comes back out, uh, as I think it will, that would have been a great trade for Canadians. We sold it for $18 billion and get it back for 7 and we got a chance to do better next time. <laughs> Sounds like my kind of trade, you know? <laughs> um, by the way, you can ask questions. Uh, you write them down, and uh, someone is going around, and you pass them to me, and then I'll uh, you know, make sure that uh, I aggregate them and, and, and um, ask uh, you know, the relevant questions. Actually, you just stole one of my, my next question, which is, uh, do you think that uh, some of these uh, uh, companies, uh, Alcan, Inco, um, you know, could be coming back uh, to Canada or, you know, re-nationalize, um, if you want, not really nationalize, but, you know, re-Canadianize? Um, you think so? What about you, uh, Catherine? You, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I think the, the classic location, and I think both uh, Randall and Bruce touched on it, is uh, a place like Sudbury where you have opportunity to bring a geographic and geological space together, which was tried about 10 years ago. <laughs> and, um, and also because um, some of the drivers uh, that are influencing these really big companies right now, um, those aren't necessarily a space-like uh, the high margin opportunities that are available in, in a place like Sudbury. And I use that as an example. There are others, but, but that's a perfect example of where that might happen. We also need, let me add to that, we need to have uh, not just Canadian companies to come back, but also other companies. We noticed that China, we were the number three recipient of Chinese FDI uh, through uh, 2005-2013, and then it dropped off the face of the map after that. Uh, and we know Canadian mining companies can only raise about 40% of the capital they need on the local markets. We need to have that investment from Chinese companies as well uh, and need to create an environment uh, where, where they understand what the rules are and they have options to, to bring some of that foreign capital to invest in building up some of our local companies as well. So, Bruce, you touched on uh, productivity earlier, or earlier on. Um, why is it or maybe you can give us your opinion of uh, why Canadian companies are laggard in adopting uh, technology in you know being as effective and who would you rank like number one in the world is it Australia is it you know who's like the leader and what do they do differently that we don't do so tech technology the mining industry is generally conservative in adopting technology some of it for good reason uh, we, capital cost is one. We have equipment already running. Let's wait till that equipment runs out. The, the life cycle of equipment uh, delays some of the direction you do technologies. And we're also a bit conservative. And I think it's that third factor uh, which we need to, need to fix. We do see in Australia uh, uh, the use of things like driverless trucks. That's a technology which is being used successfully there, and they're ramping that up. Um, we also see technologies like, uh, let me give you a simple one, wearables technologies in the manufacturing sector where uh, you wear sets of glasses, and if you're fixing a, a fuel pump or something at a remote part of the mine, uh, through your glasses there is a video camera which the maintenance supervisor can see what you're looking at and help you uh, do the uh, assessment and then, and then provide the right advice on how to fix it. Those are things which exist already and are being used elsewhere, uh, and, uh, and they're not massive investments. So th those are a couple of, uh, couple of good examples. Uh, we also know that technology tends to help improve productivity. 
and, and I, you know, I would have a call to action today, which is that we should not be 10% less productive than Australian and US counterparts. We do control that factor. Mm. Um, and uh, you know, I think never let a good crisis go to waste. Great time, I think, now uh, to really look at our internal performance and, uh, and improve that factor. But Catherine, uh, you know, when you uh, were at Inco, I mean, didn't they try to, you know, increase productivity and everything else? And so, what is it a mindset in, within the company that sort of prevents the uh, adoption of new technology, or like we've always done it this way? Why change? Or, you know, is it uh, what is it in your view? Yeah, I, I think that is something that you do here in the mining industry. Is we've always done it this way, and that is mm -hmm. part of that conservatism. Um, I think that the other expectation, too, is that there are silver bullets in ap application of technology. Mm -hmm. Some of the things that I, for example, worked in quite a bit were um, uh, remotely sensing, um, let's say, through uh, an optical or other variety of piece of equipment on the front of a jumbo, being able to assess grade <coughs> on a mock pile or that kind of thing. We were looking at those things 15 years ago. Um, they are possible. Um, but people are afraid of the technology. They're afraid of the extra um, uh, requirements with respect to um, uh, maintenance requirements and those kinds of things. And I think they're available. Some of these things are available to us now. Um, but that reluctance and also the uncertainty um, with respect to when you take these things on a roadshow, if you're a smaller company, um, and then you're trying to uh, sell your ideas to, to a new investors. That hesitancy, oh, this is cutting edge. Hmm, we're not, it's never been proven in this application before, et cetera, et cetera. I think that becomes a roadblock as well, not so much for the larger companies, but certainly for mid-tier and smaller companies looking to raise already difficult to raise capital. But, you know, you would think, like, the, the mining industry in Canada has written off, like, close to $70 billion over the last two years. Th those are mistakes that they made in acquisition. You'd think that they could devote, like, a couple billion for, you know, new technology, no? I mean, w what do you think, Randall? Yeah, well, it's hard to argue with that, Pierre. <laughs> but, just a couple comments. I mean, on what you said, Bruce, of us being 10% behind, you know, U.S. and Australian companies, that's hardly the the benchmark that you want to shoot for because yeah. we all have operations in those countries, and we know that we're still doing heap leach operations in in the Western United States. And you, you know, if you showed up, you'd think it was 1983 or something with the same trucks, shovels, and yeah. and processes. So we can probably do much, much better than that. I, I agree with Catherine. Um, that when we go forward and we talk about you know using something new, and I do about 400 meetings a year with shareholders, uh, it's always met with resistance because mm -hmm. they say, "Gee, you got political risk, you got commodity price risk, you got mining risk, geologic risk, metallurgical risk, and now you just want to compound that." Yeah. So there's really, from the shareholder perspective, there's nobody who seems to really embrace it, even though we all know logically it's the right thing to do. But uh, I agree with you, Bruce. Hopefully this wake-up call that we've got of these low commodity prices, uh, looking at the track record that you mentioned, Pierre, is a bit of an inspiration that we just have to do better. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, just to uh, talk about one of the, the bugbear of the last few years, uh, CapEx, capital costs that, that have blown way out, um, you know, 
Bruce, maybe you can give us your view of why a project that starts at you know 600 million ends up at 1.5 billion, and uh, you know is uh, the whole capex under control now? Like you know, do company understand what they're doing or not? Or like you know, what are the risks over the next two three years, for example? This this is a big one. Uh, look, and unfortunately on that one, our record in Canada in bringing home large capital projects on time and on budget is no better than the rest of the world. And by the way, globally, 70% of large capital projects uh, are, are over time and over budget, and sometimes doubling. It, the numbers are, are awful. And again, that is actually something under our control. Now, why is it happening? I think, first of all, too many mining companies think that they're actually outsourcing the risk to engineering firms that are actually building these projects. And they design the contract whereby they, the, the risk, it seems to be, actually handled by somebody else. But it's not the case. When that project goes wrong, you're the one who's back explaining to your shareholders uh, uh, you know, why we screwed up on this. Uh, and, and you need to, uh, I think, work much more constructively with the, with the engineering firms that are building the projects, putting in place basic project management skills. Unfortunately, engineers don't learn project management at engineering school. Uh, and there are you know, basics in, in project management uh, which could also, I think, help uh, uh, at, at the base of these uh, these projects. We have uh, lack of skills, labor shortages, an area where the government can help, actually. We, we do not have enough uh, welders and pipe fitters and supervisors and truck drivers who actually play an important role uh, uh, in the construction of these, these projects. And then the actual execution uh, in the field uh, in construction uh, is, is also poor. Uh, and there, it's a case of putting in place the right project management, uh, the right uh, uh, KPIs to measure productivity on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, um, and, it's, and again, it's not rocket science, but we have a very pure, a very poor record, I think, in delivering against it. So um, they say that uh, experience uh, is uh, the best teacher, but sometimes uh, it happens to be the most expensive. Um, Catherine and, and uh, Randall, you have uh, worked for big companies. You're now, you know, um, the head of a mid-sized company, entrepreneurial companies. How do you uh, tackle capex uh, from your, you know, new vintage point? Like, you know, what are the differences? How do you see that? Uh, how do you bring home a project instead of like spending 1.5 billion, you spend a billion or 800 million, and how do you capture the same value? <coughs> Catherine, you go first. Yeah, uh, I think one of the key things is you, when you're building a company, it's a little bit easier because that project is you. You're building a company, and maybe that project is part of that build. So you have to own that process. Mm -hmm. um, it. it it can't you can't distance yourselves with a third party running uh, running the show for you and you must own that process because um, as you point out Bruce um, if it fails it's you and and you can't hide from that so so that's one of the things and I think that's easier to do than if you're within a larger company um, but let's face it if if you are spending three billion dollars on a build. Um, even the biggest company, that, that has to be something that resonates in, in the boardroom at the executive management level, and it can't be handed off to people. Um, and I, uh, So I think it becomes a very different view of how you build projects and limit the third-party sort of uh, that interference uh, management level. And it's easier to do when you're building because that's part of our entrepreneurial reason for raison d'etre, if you will. Okay. Randall? I think the bottom line, Pierre, is, you know, 
spend money as if it's your own. Mm-hmm. And to personalize this to you and me at New Gold, where we each own about 1% of the company, if somebody says this is going to cost $100 million, I always think this is costing you a million dollars and it's costing me a million dollars. And what do I think of that idea? Um, it's not theoretical. It's not this ephemeral sort of shareholders out there somewhere. It's, and I think that, uh, and, and you're so intimately involved in a private company, when you're spending your own money and spending it as if, because it is your own money. It is. Uh, I think you just think about it that much harder. You think about that much harder about what could go wrong. And you just care that much more. Mm-hmm. I think that that's part of what gets lost in these yeah. bigger projects. Yeah. I think to be in mining, you have to be inherently optimist because it takes so long to uh, get uh, your money back. You know, at, at my age, I don't even buy green bananas anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but you know. Pierre, on that point of being an optimist, there, there are, come back to the capital projects again, there, there are, there's t- too much optimism going into these projects without really thinking through the upfront planning and where are we going to get the labor from? How are we going to actually get the, the kit there that we need to actually build the mine? Do we have the right, have we selected the right subcontractors? Are the, are the engineering firm incentivized to be as productive as we would like them to be? Uh, are, we, are we planning for construction? Are we using modular construction? So there are lots of things good basic questions in project planning it could happen earlier that would avoid the surprises later on. But isn't it a, a tug of war between the promoter trying to raise the money and the guy who has to build it? Like, I mean, the promoter has got to, you know, make it shine like, you know, this thing's going to be the best thing that you've ever seen and the guy who's going in the field who's got to build it, you know, he's got the reality. But isn't that tug of war always been there, would always be there, like Randall? Yeah, I think you're right, Pierre. Um, and, in fact, the, generally you're encouraged to just go boldly ahead and just do things. Because everyone you're speaking to, if you're talking to a mining company, is positive on the price of nickel or the price of gold or the price of copper. Because if they think the price is going down, what the heck are they meeting with you for? So almost the shareholder base uh, tends to encourage irrational behavior because they say, it's okay, gold's going to be $2,000 an ounce and your 6% rate of return is going to be 25 so go for it. And, you know, but, it, but that doesn't address the question of what about the, the engineer who has to deal with reality? And I think there is a conflict because, you know, if you say, hey, you built too much conservative in, conservatism in here, how am I ever going to raise the money to build this? If you say that the sustaining capital of 10 years from now, how the heck do we know what it is? Let's pull it back. Uh, you've got the engineering firms who are somewhat working against you because they're often doing your feasibility study, and if you decide to build the project, they get engaged to be your ECPM contractor. So uh, everybody's got a bias to make it work. Uh, the guys who are supposed to be you know, realistic planners, they, they just like building projects. So everybody's got rose-colored glasses on, and what we found is uh, you know, they're, they're, they're pretty opaque. Yeah, the, the shades go out. Um, what, one question that uh, I'd like to uh, turn to now is uh, the role of uh, governments uh, in, uh, in, in mining. And uh, uh, Bruce, you, you've seen jurisdiction like, you know, Australia, where the, the government is quite involved, uh, the U.S., where they don't do nothing, uh, Canada, I'm not too sure where exactly we are. 
you know, um, give us your views as to, I mean, and, and also in Canada, the, the, the mining uh, is a provincial jurisdiction, and yet the environmental is both the federal and the provincial. And then, you know, you have all of the, the land issues. I mean, it, it's complicated, okay? Um, but it's also complicated in Australia and most other jurisdictions. What, sh what should the role of government be uh, in terms of uh, the Canadian mining industry. How do you see it? And then I'd like you too, uh, Catherine and Randall, to think about it because it's something that, you know, I think it's vitally important. Um, and uh, I'd like, you know, the audience to get a good view of, a good sense of your thinking. This is a critical one. That the, we need to make Canada an attractive place to attract capital investment to come in from outside. Uh, and, and that, uh, as I mentioned before, Canadian mining companies, they can only raise 40% of the capital need locally, so we have to attract other, other countries in as well. And where the government can help, uh, I mentioned one thing already. I think uh, I, would, I would say, first of all, we really need to attract more young people to go into skilled trades so we don't have that shortage that we do really have today in the field, uh, in, in the welders and the fitters and so on. These are, these are high-paid jobs. The kids at high school don't know that, and so they, they pick another career, uh, which ends up with a salary is a fraction of that and, and, uh, and perhaps less exciting a career. So I think that's an area where they can help on the educational front. Building infrastructure. We do need access to water. We've got to have the roads built. Uh, and that would uh, uh, you know, provide better access to some of these jurisdictions where the, uh, where the deposits are. Um, they have to simplify some of these processes for permitting. I mean, Randall, of course, is an expert on that. Uh, I'll leave him to comment on, on the permitting processes. That's also a big deal. Um, and, but it, it, you know, sum that up. It's. Uh, uh, I also think they, they should help. They, they do provide some tax benefits for exploration. I'd love to see tax benefits on the technology adoption front. Is there something that they can help mm. on, on there? And then my last thing would be, a lot of mining companies have invested abroad. Can the Canadian government not team up with other governments at the IMF, at the World Bank, and help us in in some of the uh, they call them the rogue jurisdictions that are, you know, nationalizing bit by bit by increasing their taxes. Can, can we have a combined from with other countries to take on those countries to avoid some of those things happening? I think those are all areas which the government, government can help on. Some of the uh, resource nationalism that yeah. we're seeing roll through. I totally agree. Catherine. Yeah, I, I think public perception they can, they can work on as well. With 400,000 people, give or take, uh, working uh, for the mining industry in this country, I think... Um, I think there, there can be as much of an effort with putting forward um, as much positivity uh, as there are in some of the other, in some other industries, and I think that's important. Um, I'm, because of the nature of, of where we're currently working, um, infrastructure is massive. Mm. Um, there are cities in this country and, and major communities that have been um, active for over 100 years in Canada that were started because there was some infrastructure around mining and they're still vibrant communities. And so that is possible. But in order to take advantage, the, the, the new exciting camps are right now not necessarily accessible. And that infrastructure really, the concept of public-private partnerships and those kinds of things, really there needs to be a little bit of meat put on that, mm -hmm. those bones because it's talked about, but it really is not a reality yet. And you really don't you're not seeing, certainly not in the last 15 years, any evidence of that in some of the key areas in Canada where there's opportunity to build infrastructure that will not only support the mining industry, but also remote communities. And I think that's really important. It also gives 
people in remote communities, especially Aboriginal uh, people, we need to keep the kids in school. We need to give them a reason to stay in their communities and work productively in their communities, and they want that. And uh, I think that's an important role that sort of fits into that infrastructure story. But then aren't you asking the government to, uh, it's like, uh, you know, uh, putting the, the cart before the horse. <clears throat> because <clears throat> so it, uh, you're asking the government to spend the money without knowing whether or not uh, they will get their money back. Um, would you not consider, for example, say, um, you know, for a region like, uh, you know, up north, for example, say, okay, uh, any company who finds anything will give you a 10-year tax-free holiday, but you build all the infrastructure. And then at that point, yeah. you'd have a huge incentive for companies to go out there, find a billion-dollar type ore bodies, and then they put in the infrastructure yeah. at their cost. Well, you know, things like that have happened. I mean, Nana Civic, um, I believe the port was actually a loan from the government. It mm -hmm. was paid back uh, once Nana Civic was up and running, and there was a partnership as well on the airstrip. And so these things can happen. And there is precedent. Randall, what's your, uh, you know, I mean, you're very heavily involved in, in British Columbia uh, and also here in Ontario. Um, you know, what's the impact of mining in Ontario? What kind of support are, are we, uh, are you getting? And what's your views of the, the whole government uh, mining relationship? Yeah, well, I think that's important. And Bruce said that I've become an expert in permitting. And I didn't want to be an expert in permitting, <laughs> but uh, was forced to become one. Um, I mean, Ontario and BC are fantastic places to do business with lots of expertise, with great mineral endowments. Uh, but what we found is, you know, we were dealing with four different uh, ministries here in Ontario. Uh, and just to deal with the Ontario government, leave out the federal government, leave out eight local communities and 12 First Nations groups, uh, you know, I had to establish relationships with the Ministry of Energy, with the Ministry of Northern Development and Mines, with Natural Resources and Environment, uh, and somehow try and coordinate all of these groups to get to, fortunately, the success that we had getting our environmental permits. But I, what I see is there's a, a couple things going on. Number one, uh, you know, the Ontario government wants to get better at coordinating this because I see the ads for Ontario uh, all over the world come invest here. And as someone who grew up here and grew up here and lives here, uh, how do we make this easier for people so that you don't have to sort all that out? And I think they do want to get better. I think the federal government has initi initiated things to try and coordinate better with the province. Uh, but the one thing I see is that south of Highway 7, uh, people don't really appreciate the role of mining in this province. It's a $9 billion economy employing 144,000 people, as you said, Bruce, at double the wage. Yeah. Uh, it's misunderstood as being a short-term business, whereas, you know, the Campbell Mine in northern Ontario has been going for 100 years. Red Lake's about to celebrate 75 years. They've been in Sudbury forever, and we have very long lives. So I encourage people in the audience who I know are capital providers and follow this industry that, you know, and the ministers from northern Ontario are pleading for more recognition from their colleagues who have never lived outside of Toronto uh, to fully appreciate the role that mining plays in all the provinces of Canada, uh, how significant it is, and that it's one thing that Canadians are actually pretty good at. 
Thank you. Okay, one final question uh, for the three of you very quick. I, I wish we had more time, but uh, I've been given the, you know, like this. Um, environmental stewardship, Canadian companies uh, in Canada and abroad. Uh, you know, we, uh, it seems that, you know, many Canadian companies make the, uh, the, the cover of newspaper, but not in a good way. Um, and yet, the, you know, the company seems to be working very hard at environmental stewardship. Um, how do you, uh, you know, uh, how do you go about it to, to get, you know, a better at that? Uh, Bruce, how do you see that? A challenge. We actually looked recently for a mining company at the, at the investment in corporate social responsibility, including mining, including environmental stewardship, against the, the number of negative media hits uh, that that company was getting. So the number of times their name associated with things like human rights and bad environment and so on. And unfortunately, as the investment in CSR went up, so did the number of negative media hits. So it was, uh, so there's a, there's a massive perception gap out there. You know, I do believe mining companies are doing their, are doing their best, particularly Canadian mining companies in this area, but aren't yet getting the credit uh, for it. And, um, and, and I think that the, I have no better solution than just uh, in a better communication, as Randall was saying, but what you're doing in the community, the jobs that are being created, the, uh, uh, the fact that uh, you're there to stay in many communities for, for, the, long, for the long haul, uh, uh, and the positive impact you are having on the environment, and the fact that this has become central. I mean, the right to mine now is re relatively hard to get. Mm -hmm. These things are monitored, and uh, uh, you know, mining executives want to do the right thing for the environment. And so I, I think actually that the actions are ahead of the perception. Uh, and again, greater, par greater communication, greater partnerships locally uh, uh, will, will, will end up... Um, uh, winning a day, but I think we should be a leader in that uh, in that sector. And to some extent, we're in that area. To some extent, we're there today, but not getting credit for it. Catherine? Yeah, I think I, I think there are a couple of different items to touch on, and, and there's a very different world dealing with, let's say, uh, mining and environmental stewardship that comes with basic regulatory environment versus some um, parts of the world where there's very let's say, rudimentary mining act, if there is one at all, there's very, very rudimentary controls. But I think we've done a good job in, in, as Canadian companies um, because our various organizations, be it um, MAC with uh, Towards Sustainable Mining or PDAC with E3 Plus and those kinds of things, we're doing the right kinds of things, providing uh, information and platforms on best practices for Canadian companies working in jurisdictions that don't have these. Um, I think it becomes a little bit clouded in Canada where, again, streamlining of the permitting process and also the regulatory, pro like the compliance process, needs to be done. There's no question about that. But by the same token, uh, just adding in another layer of, well, you have to now perform at this other level, yes, it's best practice. But I think in Canada, we're, we're really, if we do things the way we are supposed to and provide a streamlined environment with appropriate capacity within Canada to monitor that, because I think that's fallen a, a little bit, getting, getting proper capacity within the regulatory system. I think if we address those, I think we're doing quite well and, and apply those good standards that other organizations have provided as benchmarks outside of Canada where there's a less evolved uh, environment. Okay. Randall, you've got one minute. Yeah. I, I think we're... Uh... I think the perception is decades out of date. Mm -hmm. uh, the safety record in Canada today in mining is four times better than it was 30 years ago. I think Canadian companies are world class in terms of their 
handling of environmental and social issues, and it's something we can be proud of as we carry it around the world. Uh, so uh, people fundamentally believe that doing things the right way is not only correct, but it's also less expensive long term. Uh, but I think that we've got a much better job to do of telling our story uh, because it's really a story that I think we can all be proud of. Well, I think it comes back to perception is reality, and, and mm -hmm. I've just got the perception that our time is up, so thank you very much. <laughs> and thank you to uh, Randall, Catherine, and Bruce uh, for thank the you. wonderful time and debate that we've had today. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Good afternoon. My name is Fred Mifflin, and I'm a director of the Canadian Club. Pierre, thank you very much for moderating today's panel and for engaging us in a wide-ranging discussion on the opportunities and challenges facing the Canadian mining industry, plus a little levity. Uh, Catherine, Randall, and Bruce, thank you for your perspectives, stimulating conversation, and sharing your industry knowledge. These are clearly challenging times. That is the reality of a cyclical business. Yet, it's times like these that have produced some of the greatest long-run opportunities for Canadian miners, a time when Canadian entrepreneurship shines. And to all the investors and bankers in the room today, these are times when miners actually work very hard for your money. We have a lot to be proud of, yet we need to stay at the forefront of exploration development, and technology. This is a key industry for Canada, and we're all counting on your collective risk-taking, expertise, and investment to keep Canada at the leading edge. Thanks again for joining us at the Canadian Club today. Thanks, Fred. As a Sudbarian and a former mining executive. I'm quite excited and jazzed by the insightful discussion we had today. So panelists, thank you very much for joining us. And our sincere thanks once again to today's event sponsors, BMO Capital Markets, EY, and Marsh for making this event possible. Before I adjourn today's meeting, I'd like to draw your attention to the event survey on each of your tables. The Canadian Club is always looking for ways to improve your experience, so please, if you would take a minute to help us by sharing your thoughts and comments, including whether you like our new shortened luncheon format this season. We'd very much appreciate your feedback. This concludes our program today, which will be broadcast on Rogers TV in the days to come. We are very grateful to Rogers TV and 680 News for their continuing promotion of Canadian Club events. To learn more about the club and our upcoming luncheons, please visit us at canadianclub.org. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you all for joining us today. Our meeting is now adjourned. Thank you.